1: everyone welcome back to say it In contagious uh the interstitial podcast which is uh every other week where we have fewer of us in a shorter time but an even better topic or at least more focused (laughs) this week we are talking to our very own lincoln mitchell whose book has just come out it's called the giants and their city available i would suggest bookshop.org but i suppose you could do amazon if you had to and it's it's a great book. It's about the giants and the city uh, from 1976 to 1992. And it's Frank Garidi and I who are doing the questioning of Lincoln today. So, Frank, you want to introduce yourself and, and take it away?
3: Yes. Yes. Thanks, Tova, Frank Garidi. And I'm very happy to be able to talk uh, with Lincoln about this book. Uh, we had an event about his most recent book before this one, San Francisco Year Zero. Which is a fascinating look at San Francisco in 1978. San Francisco politics, culture, and society centered around the Giants and around the assassinations of uh, Moscone and, and Harvey Milk. And so you returned to some of those themes in this book. Um, so I was really happy to read this one. Uh, so you've written; you're very prolific, Lincoln. Uh, you know, you've written a lot of books. Uh, this is the third one on the on the Giants, in some way, shape, or form. We wrote about the uh, baseball coming west, looking you know, looking at the movement of the. Um, You know the Giants and Dodgers going out to California, you've written the 1978 book, and now you're on this period. So tell us why you decided to write this book, why you're you're still not ready to let the Giants go as a topic for your books.
0: Well, really two reasons why I'm not ready to let the Giants go as a topic for my books. One is, I think of this and year zero, and not so much Baseball Goes West, but this and year zero as part of an intellectual project in my own mind of trying to figure out how San Francisco got to be San Francisco. And I'm looking at it through lenses that I like, which is baseball. Uh, and in Year Zero is more than baseball. I'm also, my next book is the biography of George Moscone, which is a really political history book. So I think that this is a key moment in the development of San Francisco, a key period which has enormous imp- impact on the rest of urban America. So that, that's, that's one reason. The second reason is that there's a period in San Francisco history, which is, roughly the period in this book, and one of the titles that I didn't use for this book, but I had it in my head as I was writing it was Between the Bonses, Between the Trading of Bobby and the Signing of Barry. And it's a time where, which is kind of the forgotten moment, not so much in the political history, but in the cultural history and the baseball history and the kind of the the experience of being a San Franciscan if you weren't in the thick of the politics. And this is, and, and it's also my generation. So, you know, Growing up, being told, on the one hand, over and over and over again, it's too bad you never saw Willie Mays and weren't here for the summer of love. And secondly, I don't really care that much about Jack Clark or the Dead Kennedys. So I wanted to kind of recenter this period of the Giants in the Giants history and in San Francisco history. And of course, a big part of that and a big part of the book is their constant struggle to find a home and stay in San Francisco. This book begins with them having moved to Toronto and ends with them having moved to Tampa. And the extraordinary thing is, both those things fell through, and they stayed in San Francisco.
1: Can I ask if uh, there's a third reason, which is um, how old were you in 1978? I was 10. Okay, so you would have already been pretty into baseball by then.
0: Yes. I mean, I became into baseball, I think 76 was the first season to which I paid a lot of attention. But 78 was the first year the Giants were good. Right. So in San Francisco, it was a very different that year
1: and what was the year that you moved from san francisco to new york
0: to san francisco moved back to, to new york yes <laughs> in 1990 i was in san francisco i lived in san francisco from 71 to 90 so this is very much this is very personal i mean it's not no, very no, personal. absolutely and
1: that's what i'm getting at. i'm just joking with lincoln because i i figured that that is approximately the years that he came of age on base in baseball with baseball No, so it's it's um
0: it's really the bob lurie era no, oh, I Lurie... mean, it's, uh,
1: uh, um, it's definitely like a book of love for the city and, and the, the team itself that you grew up with. I was kind of really impressed and amazed at the people that you were able to interview for this book. And I wanted to ask you about that and what that was like. To talk to some of these people.
0: Well, it was, I'll tell you some stories. The first interview, well, Bob Lurie was the first interview I did uh, out in Palm Springs, where I'd, I think I've been there once before, but that's kind of a strange place. And, and he was extremely gracious, and I just wanted, you know, uh, uh, Corey Bush put us in touch and said that you might be interested in, you know, if you were interested in this, and we chatted, and he said, and I said, you know, I'm going to write my book, but I'd love to have your cooperation. And, and once, once Bob Lurie kind of said, I'm, I would like to help, I'd like, I'm would like i going to make myself available, that opened a lot of doors because I can say, and Bob um, is another, I mean, this is also part of the book. Bob is one dude who buys the team with one other guy and ends up buying, buying, buying out that other guy and is the sole owner of the team for all that period. And players love playing for him. I mean, I'll tell you, I can certainly tell you about Vita Blue's experience, contrasting playing for Bob Lurie than with, with Charlie Finley. But the reason I start with Bob is the first interview I got because I was in Palm Springs was with Chris Speyer, who's was a longtime Major League shortstop, uh, was kind of a, a, a star with the Giants and then settled into a good career as a solid but not great Major Leaguer. And I sat down to talk with Chris Spire in a cafe in Palm Springs. This is back when you could sit down and talk with people in cafes. And, and I realized... A few sentences into our conversation, it was the first time I'd had a conversation with a major league ball player. I've loved baseball my whole life, but I've really always been an outsider. And this book began to change that. I'm still an outsider. I talked to Lurie about this. I said, you live in this country of baseball. I'm always gonna be a Best of Tourist. So that was very interesting. Talking to the players in general, you know, there were some fun experiences. I mean, John Montefusco kept Fox News on <laughs> throughout the whole interview. And, and at, when the interview started, asked me what I, what I thought. And I knew in advance because the person who set up the meeting, Montefusco had asked him, oh, is, he's from, he teaches at Columbia. Is he one of those liberal professors to which the person said, yeah, of course, he teaches. Like, yeah, he's a smart guy. But, um, but he said, do you mind? And I said, as long as I can get the recording, I don't mind. And once I said that, he was very frank and completely goofy. But, you know, um, Vita Blue was a fascinating interview one because he just i think such an important and and really overlooked player i mean i and, and very gracious i mean I, I i've long believed that uh vita blue if catfish hunter should be in the hall of fame Vita blue should be in the hall of fame and i know that vita blue when he was playing indicated that he felt like hunter i mean this is stories i'd read in the 70s and read since then you know got a little bit too much attention and they weren't they were actually more equivalent in terms of skills and if you look at the numbers you could, he's got a good point but towards the end of the interview i said to him you know, Mr. Blue, I, I really want to ask you this. It's been on my mind for years now. And I said, when I asked him the question, he said, Let me tell you something. It was an honor to be the number two pitcher behind Vita Blue, uh, behind Campus Hunter. Now, I don't think he necessarily believed that, but he was very gracious in saying it. And then as I left, he kind of reached into his bag and said, Do you have a pen? And I said, Yeah, I'm a professor. Of course, you have a pen. And he signed a ball for me. He's a sweet guy. Uh, the, the best interview was, was Will Clark because we sat in the dugout at Oracle Park in the morning before a game and just kind of talked. But what 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 struck me is that many of these people, it's kind of like that Bruce Springsteen song. Men, you know, these are guys who they're not. They're, they're, some of them would like to get back into baseball as coaches. Some of them, some of them, I call Kuiper and Kruko announced for the Giants now. But many of them, they're very happy to talk about this if you kind of can get the, their confidence that you're not going to write a piece, a piece that's going to you know attack them or something like that. A very and the other fascinating interview was with Kevin Mitchell because uh, Mitchell, besides being a distant cousin, he's we're not related. Um, you know, we talked to the extent I talked to about any of these guys, about some of my questions about race and politics, it was Kevin Mitchell. And he responded, I think, very honestly, but also very cautiously. He didn't want to create problems for himself. And he didn't want to missay anything.
1: Yeah, I noticed that too. I, I thought the Kevin Mitchell parts were fascinating and did seem to force you into trying to, you know, bob and weave a little bit around that because he wasn't going to come right out and say something
3: yeah no that the, the 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 mitchell's uh discussion was very interesting um but you know i i, ha- I was going to say this question for later but i figured i'd ask you now so you know on this podcast we've been known to criticize owners and major league baseball but this is a book that you know that like you say is is on the bob lurie error so i'm wondering if if you had any thoughts or you could speak to your your read on his ownership right so you mentioned some players you know like playing for him um he cooperated with you on the book. Uh, and so, you know, given, given what we have always said or frequently said about baseball executives just last week for, you know, Kevin Mather, for example, you know, what's your read on Lurie as an, a, as, as an owner? Was he effective? Uh, obviously, much of the story is about, you know, his, his, his attempt to get the Giants out of Candlestick Park and into a new ballpark, which he fails to do, right? Um, uh, so you know, tell us your read on, on Lurie as, a, as an owner. Well,
0: remember, he starts in this absolutely heroic moment. He's the first person to call newly elected Mayor Moscone and say, I'm in for half the team. And then he couldn't then he struggled to raise the other half of the money. So he comes in as a hero. He kept the team from leaving. And and the reason that Lurie was important is not just because he had the princely today it sounds like nothing, but four million bucks that he'd say, I'm in for you know the four million that gets me half the team. But that everyone in San Francisco knew that if Bob Lurie bought the team, he wouldn't leave. The Lurries are a big philanthropic. His father was dead at that point. But Big philanthropic family in San Francisco, real estate. He was a civic booster. So it's, a, it's an old school of honor. Lurie was more or less upfront with me that he had no idea how to react to the changes in the game. He said, I was overwhelmed by free agency. I didn't quite know what to do with it. I was not prepared for it. The, the one moves he makes in that first 76-77 uh, offseason turned out to be a brilliant one. For on and off the field, which is that he's for much less than people are paying for people like Joe Rudy, he brings in Willie McCovey, who ends up winning comeback player of the year. And then, and that made, made McCovey even more beloved in San Francisco. But he couldn't figure out how to, what to do with free agency. There was a sense of directionlessness. You know, I'm going to sign Milt May. Well, I guess Milt May's good, but what does he bring to the team? Jim Walford. The t- turning point is Al Rosen. Brings in Al Rosen late in '85, and Rosen builds a winning team. And the and, and the combination of Rose and Roger Clegg and really Will Clark and the team is not a laughing stock anymore. Really, ever, ever again, I think. But as an owner, you know, it was it was a mixed bag. I mean, he he '87. They just it was probably on balance a mistake. And some people around the Giants have said that off the record to try to put it on the ballot. It also put put Mus, uh, put excuse me Lurie on the political side where he would be less comfortable. Because he's, he's, I mean, look, let's, Bob Lurie is a very rich man, right? But when you talk to him about politics, he's a wealthy liberal. He's a San Francisco liberal. And Art Agnos was more his speed politically, but Agnos was against the ballpark. He sides with the conservative, John Molinari, and they lose. Agnos becomes mayor, and then Agnos starts that relationship. 89 was a heartbreak for Lurie. And to some extent, they won the, you know, went to the World Series in 89, but losing that ballot initiative of 89 really set him for a loop. And he was never the same again. And it was a sense even talking to him a little bit of despair and a little bit of anger. And that's why he starts exploring Santa Clara. And for non-San Franciscans, that may seem like it's not a big deal. But I mean, I know that Frank and Tova are New Yorkers. And some people have observed that New Yorkers are provincial. But there is, New Yorkers are, are not in the least provincial compared to San Franciscans. I mean, I'll tell you, there's that famous song, Do You Know the Way to San Jose. I remember around this period, the early 90s, I was in San Francisco with a bunch of my old Catholic school friends, and another one of our old friends was getting married in, in San, San Jose, and, and he invited us down there from kind of like a bachelor party or something. So we get in the car. I'm driving, and these are four guys who are lifelong San Franciscans. I'm, I'm, I'm the new guy, right? I moved there in 71. I was back from Columbia from grad school, and we get in the car, and we don't know where we're going. And I said, so we don't know the way to San Jose, but San Franciscans <laughs> really don't. So the idea that he would be open to moving down the peninsula was seen as a betrayal. And, you know, if you're a Giants fan over about 45, Lurie's the guy who saved the team. Under 40, he's the guy that almost let them go.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was gonna um, say that the the book is as much of anything. I mean, it's certainly about the politics of the time, but it's also a story about Candlestick. It's the story of Candlestick. And I I love some of the quotes from some people around (laughs) what Candlestick was like. I, I had Bobby Mercer... Was great.
3: <laughs> Former Yankee. Yes, indeed. Zero zero in on that Future one, Yankee yeah. at that point.
1: And uh, yeah. so I wanted to to ask about that, and also I know that I mean you had your own experiences during that time at Candlestick that I know were, were a lot of fun for you. So that must have been really interesting hearing other people's descriptions of their time in in Candlestick.
3: Let me just chime in real fast on Candlestick, because that was going to be my one of my questions, too. I mean, what I liked about Year Zero is that, you know, in your previous book, you, you talked about going to games there. It's very easy to beat up on Candlestick Park, for good reason, right? Uh, and yet, you know, I found your, your, your portrait of the ballpark or the experiences going there interesting, you know, a little different than what you normally see, which is the obvious facts of the horrible winds and the temperature and et cetera and so on. Uh, and yet, you know, the Giants stay there for so damn long, you know, uh, and, and they have to make peace with it. And so do their fans, including you. Well, yes. Uh, and, and, and,
0: you know, Tobe, I think you pick up on something important. Candlestick Park is probably the main character in this book. It is. It, it, this book isn't a book without Candlestick Park. Um, and, you know, it was to hear it from the player's perspective and really hear just how much, you know, it's very human to hate playing there. And you know many of them did. On the other hand, the day game, there was, day game at the stick was fantastic. It was never humid. It was as warm. You remember, San Francisco was a city of microclimate. So on a Saturday, more like a day game from where I live now in San Francisco and where my family's been since 85, my mom, to the candlestick, well, she's in a cold neighborhood too. If you start out in, no, yeah, in that neighborhood to Candlestick Park, it might be 15 degrees, 10 degrees warmer at the stick in the day. But the thing about candlestick was in an inning, as soon as if you were sitting in the lower deck as soon as you were in the shade it got very cold very fast. And the nights night games were as bad as they say. I mean, I would dress to visit my grandparents, I would dress the same way to go to a night game in August as to visit my grandparents in New York in December. It was that cold. And also it was, you know, Horace Stoneham was obsessed with parking, parking when he moved the Giants out there. So it's surrounded by this enormous parking lot, which means it's not it's not integrated into the community at all. So the local businesses benefited not at all. If, I mean, I was most of the time I was not old enough to go out and have a beer after a baseball game, but, but by the late 80s I was, and you just couldn't do it. You know, it, it was just, how would you get there? There it was, it was like a freeway and a parking lot. It was really kind of remote, as remote as you can be within the city. And yet they played there forever. And yet in 1989, during the earthquake, And I was not there. Unfortunately, I couldn't get tickets. But during the earthquake, nobody was killed or really badly hurt there. The the ballpark, I mean, that was its finest moment. And that was really something you can imagine how bad
3: it could have been. Including the guy who was on the light tower, right? There was somebody who was like climbing up the light tower down and uh, during the earthquake and somehow he survives. Uh, You know, that's an amazing story.
1: I should have written down. I, I didn't. I just wrote down Bobby Mercer. Do you remember off the top of your head? I hate that San
3: Francisco. <laughs> I hate this ballpark. I hate everything. Why the hell they sent me here? It's
0: like for a for some few different.
1: <laughs> <stuff>. Mike <laughs> Murphy,
0: Mike Murphy, the ballpark, who's now the, the clubhouse man emeritus, said he would come in and say, "How do we blow this place up?" Like <laughs> after striking out or something. I mean, he was and and he Mercer really felt betrayed when he was traded from the Yankees, and he was never happy until he came back to the Yankees. And that's an old Bobby Mercer story, but that's. And fortunately, the Giants had the wisdom, and this was a Bob LeRae trade and a spec richardson trade to trade him for Bill Madlock, which turned out to be a very, very good trade for the Giants.
3: So speaking of, since we're talking about players, I mean, I have other questions too, of course. But, um, you know, so this, you, you mentioned Al Rosen, you know, was hired as a GM in 1985. Uh, and, you know, they have that glorious moment for you, for sure, in the 1982 season when they knocked the Dodgers out of the playoffs the last game of the year. But then there's those seasons, 84, 85, 86, where they're, I think you described the worst period in Giants history. So, 83 you know, through it's, 85. Yeah, it's like an inglorious. They always had ugly uniforms. They changed their uniforms. That rogue uniform with the SF I thought it was just conservative and disgusting. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, you know, so but tell us your, your read on the, you know, on the on, on or the challenge of writing about that period, you know, in Giants' history, given that it's inglorious and that you're forced to talk a lot about Johnny Lemaster and you know, these other folks who were there for a while and you know, do what they can do, and they're 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 serviceable players, but you know, there aren't that many stars. There's Jack Clark, of course, there's Vita Blue. Um, you know, we've already joked about Rennie Stennett's uh, uh, contract uh, in previous episodes. You know, so it, 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 I would imagine it'd be a bit challenging to write about that period, given that they're they're really they're really not doing well until they you know revive in the late '80s.
0: Well, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is because if you're a, a baseball fan of a team, you're going to have periods if you go through a course of a life where the team's pretty bad. And if, i I I didn't not enjoy being a Giants fan, I wish they'd won more, but it was. So I actually wanted to spend some time writing about a bad team and not a bad team that was famously bad, not the 1962 Mets, you know, not, not that kind of thing. Not, there was no one was paying attention. It was out there. Nobody was going to the games on the other side of the country, you know, all of that. And on the one hand, you know, I, I don't want to relive the Jack Clark for David Green trade, particularly, or, or relive, you know, having Rennie Stannon and Johnny Lemaster in the middle of the infield, or, you know. Uh, all, all, Rich Gale come in and blow a game, or having Manny Trio, who's you know 103 years old at that point, come in and play second base. I don't necessarily want to relive that, but the feeling I want to try to capture the feeling, and then also the kind of really goofy side of that, which is not so well known outside the Bay Area. Uh, the, the having Guido Sarducci mm-hmm. doing promotional ads on local television, the crazy crab, the the kind of feel and scene at the ballpark, the quad the candlestick, which was you know. A clever, but not all that clever, because you don't schedule extra inning games in advance, right? Wait, can, you, can you just drawing...
1: before you go on? Can you explain the crazy yes. crab and the yes. Uh, yes. the yes. thing about getting in, the bonus?
0: In line, our audience. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so as some of you, if you're not, if you don't observe Jewish dietary Jewish dietary laws, <laughs> which I do not, even though I'm Jewish, you know that crab is a specialty of San Francisco, a food in a city that is really known for great food. Crab is one of the best. So, for example. A lot of Italian-Americans have a nice chippino on Christmas Eve with crab meat, which I highly recommend if you have Italian-American friends or family out there. The Vietnamese crab places are fantastic. Crab season in general, down by the wharf. You know, it's so, so it's part of the culture to, to eat crabs. Uh, so, so they got this mascot <laughs> that dressed up in a crab outfit and would dance inanely to this ridiculous music in the fifth inning, and everybody would boo, and the song would da 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 da, da, da love that crazy crab, and everybody would boo the crazy crab. and it was. It was – but the thing about the crazy crab was it captured something of the gestalt of San Francisco, which is this is a different kind of city. This is a funny, weird place. This is not a place where you know conservatism and, and fundamental Christianity is what people want from their ballplayers. And, and it did – it was the beginning of the Giants trying to figure out what that relationship was. So – and the Quadric Candlestick was – I have one of these on my uh, – in front of my – above my desk up here. A little pin about that big, about the size of a half dollar or a quarter. It said in Latin, I came, I saw, I survived. And, and it was orange with a black SF with a little snow on top of it. And if you stayed to the end of an extra inning game, you got one of these as you left. But of course, two things. One, they ended up just saying if you have the ticket stub, because they couldn't want to give it out the ballpark. They give it downtown, all these locations the next day. So you didn't have to stay to the end of the extra inning game to get it. And secondly, it doesn't bring in new fans because you don't know when you're going to have an extra inning game. So that was the quality candlestick yeah <laughs> but it, it captured kind of the spirit and and also how at this time being a giants fan was considered weird it, it's it wasn't like now everyone's wearing giants hats and hoodies all over the city you know but back then i mean i i follow on social media people from my high school including at least one person who's quite famous now and part of her kind of image is she's the big giants fan But, you know, she laughed at me in high school because I was a Giants fan. I mean, maybe she laughed at me for other reasons. That's certainly possible, too.
2: Today. Se siente bien saber que cuando le pones sirope a tu big breakfast with the hot cakes de McDonald's, tú controlas dónde cae. Primero se acerca tu biscuit y rodea la salchicha, luego llega tus hash browns y finalmente a tus huevos revueltos, dándoles ese sabor dulce del maple. Ordena por anticipado en el lab de McDonald's y que fluya el sirope. Para pa pa pa. Mobile order and pay in McDonald's participants la descarga registro.
3: So, of course, that period, the precise period we're talking about here, early mid '80s, is the period of the AIDS crisis, right? Um, and, and which has, as everybody knows, a devastating effect on on, on gay communities all over the place, but in, in New York, but especially San Francisco. And so, you know, I was trying to, you know, as you as you wrote about the Giants, you know, and you bring you bring it in every so often. But I was just curious to see, you know, your read. You, so you just mentioned the Giants, you know, to be a Giants fan was weird. Uh, and one, that might be because the 49ers are doing really well in the 80s. I hate to ask you about football, but I will. Uh, you know, there's the heyday of the Montana Walsh. Stick Niners, to baseball, right? so Franks.
1: Frank, to but that's the big now. story
3: in San Francisco. That's part of the reason why, <laughs> I mean, the Giants are doing terrible and not doing very well, but, but it's because, you know, partly the, the Niners are experiencing this, this historic moment in the history of the franchise. That has also been a fairly, you know, mediocre to losing franchise until Bill Walsh came along in the 80s. So, you know, thinking about the Giants in that context with the Niners playing there, but in particular with the AIDS crisis, uh, you know, and its political effects. And I'm just wondering how that reverberates with the Giants. So is the Giants story completely separate? Is that just its own sort of thing that has nothing to do with these other dynamics that are happening in San Francisco at the time?
0: Well, I don't particularly like to talk about football, but the only football I like talking about is the Montana-Walsh era 49ers. So that is, we're fine to talk about that. I, I, I've always been a 49ers fan. It's just, it's not as passionate as I am about baseball. Um, we used to joke in the mid-80s, mid 80s, who will win more games in September, the 49ers or the Giants? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we were aware of the problem. And the Niners were unquestionably the preeminent, the major, the signature franchise in the Bay Area. And that has not been true for 20 years, partially because of the way this book ends and the way the history ends. History doesn't end, but the way history evolved. The Niners don't play. They, they did find their way to Santa Clara. And, and the Giants mistake. didn't. Yeah, that was a mistake. And the Giants didn't. And that was fortunate. With regards to AIDS, AIDS was cast a pall over all of San Francisco, except, I suppose, among the most reactionary, you know, there was a lot of hatred and homophobia around AIDS as well. But most San Franciscans, many San Franciscans, particularly gay San Franciscans, lost people, many, many people to AIDS. You know, certainly my mom, who was an adult at that time, obviously. Uh, you know, she had friends and colleagues who died of AIDS. It was a serious thing. You didn't, you, you, this, this was everything in San Francisco. And it made baseball just less central than it would have, that, it just a losing team becomes that even, that that less relevant. It creates budget problems that lead to, that, that I think hurt the giants when they go to the polls, right? People are, how can we vote for this when we have the, all the other problems that every city has? And then an AIDS problem that is much more expensive in San Francisco, it's also worth noting uh, that this is a time where Ronald Reagan is in the White House, who, was, who frankly didn't give a hoot, to use a polite term, about AIDS or about big cities, had risk become governor and president by beating up on San Francisco, particularly the Bay Area, Berkeley, all of that, and the governor of California was George Duke Magian, who we used to call George Duke Reagan, right? So there was, so, so we were really alone out there, and, and, and big cities were at this time, and you know Diane Feinstein was no radical, but she was, she was a tough. Uh, she had to do with. I do recall at one point in the mid '80s, the Giants being one of the first franchises to do an event at the ballpark, raising money for AIDS awareness or something like that. I didn't go because I think I was in college or something, and I remember my friend, a friend who was a the biggest. I mean, I have a friend for the sake of argument, we'll call him Crazy Charlie, who. Com- compared to him, I have a passing interest in the Giants. Right, he is huge, and he had the shirt. And I remember seeing it. He got went to the game, got the shirt, and thinking that's unusual for a baseball team. So they they tried to engage again. Lurie doesn't is not is not he's not making Mather like comments. He's not making the comments that the one of the, at least one of the current owners of the team makes. He's basically a little guy. He sees his problem devastating his city, you know. And and I don't check the records, but I suspect he's giving money to help the problem. So but it it made everything more difficult.
1: The other thing besides this being a story of candlestick and all the the different characters and so on is the role of Moscone. It's, I mean, he's also a very dominant player in this story. And it's almost frustrating to read about how many times they try to resolve this situation with the the ballpark and the location of the ballpark and, and not get to the finish line. And how is, how is Moscone thought of today and uh, his leadership and, you barely even get actually to them actually getting a new stadium at the end of the book. But that, that's the happy ending, right?
0: Right. And well, well, they get the new stadium years after the book ends. I don't extend it into the 90s that way. Um, and, you know, Moscone's only mayor for three years, 76, 77, 78. Uh, and Moscone is remembered outside of San Francisco as the other guy who was assassinated along with Harvey Milk. Uh, you know, Bob Bailey, who wrote, I think, one of the seminal early books on gay politics. He's a Columbia professor who has since died. He wrote that, that while Harvey Milk's assassination is more well-known, George Moscone's assassination may have had a bigger effect on gay San Francisco than, than Harvey Milk's. Uh, George Moscone, it's, it's an odd story because Moscone runs against a guy, uh, John Barbagelata, who's kind of a Frank Rizzo, Rudy Giuliani-type conservative, reactionary, racist, homophobic uh, Republican. Beats him. At one point in late December, Barbara Gelata is so believed that the election has been stolen, and specifically stolen by Jim Jones, that he sends his people in to the, to the Board of Elections to, like, go through the ballots. I mean, it's a reminding of what's happened today. Moscone comes in with this broad progressive agenda, and the day before he's sworn in, it's in the newspapers, not that the Giants are exploring leaving, but that they are gone. They are going to Toronto. In his first three months in office, this becomes his primary challenge is to find a way to solve this. And he's able, the the key thing Moscone did, the two key things he did, was he immediately went to court to get an injunction to stop the Giants from leaving right away. And if you read uh, Judge Benson, that was the judge there who was a Reagan appointee, Governor Reagan, but a San Franciscan. If you read between the lines of his decision, which, you know, it's basically saying, you know, you don't have much of a case here, but I'm a San Franciscan and I don't want the team to go. I mean, that's basically what happened. And then he has about three months, and then he's pushing the league, and the league. The only ally he has in the National League is Walter O'Malley, because Walter O'Malley wants this rivalry. He wants the team in San Francisco. It makes a lot of sense from his perspective. But, and, and then he immediately just says, we will put the resources of the mayor's office to help keep this team here. And so he works with Lurie to find a partner and to do all that, but that's what every mayor keeps trying to do. I mean, Frank Jordan, who's the mayor at the end of the book, and is more conservative than Moscone by a lot and had some great baseball stories too. Uh, but Frank Jordan is doing the same thing. You know, Mayor doesn't have that much power, especially in a city like San Francisco, where the people won't allow you to spend taxpayer dollars building a ballpark. So it's this, this is trying to bring people together. And Jordan reaches out to the business leadership in general in a city that's much wealthy, wealthier than it was in 1976. But the question is, among the many what ifs about if Moscone hadn't been assassinated is, would Lurie and Moscone have found a, a solution quicker to the ballpark problem? Because Bob Lurie and Diane Feinstein never got along. And many people around City Hall and around the Giants said she wasn't interested in saving the Giants. She just didn't want them to leave on her watch. She didn't want a long-term solution. She was happy to, to kick the can down the road. Now, obviously, Feinstein says otherwise, and the, 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 the story is probably mixed on that.
3: I mean, that's the thing. It's, I mean, it's actually to San Francisco's credit that they didn't, finance, publicly finance a new ballpark, given what we know about stadium construction and its uh, limited effect on, uh, or negative effect on a city's finances and, and economies. You know, so and, and it might have been difficult anyway because by that point, you know, the kind of the post the 1960s, 70s stadium construction boom, publicly financed stadiums is kind of going to a halt, right? I mean, there's uh, in the 80s you have i trying to remember the new. There are very few new stadiums in the 80s, right? right? It's, you right. know, it's uh, it's, uh, the, it's what becomes Comiskey Park. And it's uh, Toronto Skydome, 89. Uh, then you have uh, Comiskey Park, which is the last of these kinds of stadiums that are still built on this kind of multi purpose or, you know, similar models with big upper decks. And then Camden Yards comes along. And that sets in motion the conditions that allow for the, you know, what became, was it AT&T Park? and what's now Oracle mm-hmm. Park. Yeah. You know, that you know, so that the new state becomes part of that wave of retro parks, downtown, indoor, which had been on, you know, people have been discussing, as you show, for years in San Francisco. So, you know, it, it may not have worked even with Musk going around. I mean, it would have been difficult because, because of the ways in which, you know, the San Francisco's have not publicly financed stadiums. I mean, that's why the Niners leave, <laughs> right? That's why they go to Santa Clara. There was less private money in San Francisco. Yeah.
0: I mean Bob Lurie in 1976 you know he is in the heart of the financial powers of the city his father had probably was probably the, the single one of the rich most valuable real estate portfolios of any one person he leaves it all to his son Bob is an only child he's hugely and he's, and he's running the company so he you know he's part of all the right clubs you know he's he, he did, you know he went to the right schools so to speak he grew up and he can't shake out 4 million bucks because that's the state of the private sector. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1990s, 1990s that's changed when Frank Jordan is trying to shake that out. But yes, it is kind of, they were just kind of making it year to year. I mean, there's proposals to dome Candlestick Park, which was too expensive. You know, the, the, the prototype for the downtown ballpark in 89 actually looks a lot like what we ended up having, but it wasn't the right time for that yet. And there was no argument in 1982, you weren't gonna go to the voters of San Francisco and say, build us a new ballpark. That was just a non-starter. But it's another case, if I may say that, you know, uh far out left wing San Francisco, those politics end up really being the right ones. It's a little bit like today with COVID. Everyone laughs at San Francisco because of school name changes, which is, you know, I don't know why that's everyone's business, right? But but those same crazy lefties have San Francisco has a lower per capita death rate from COVID than all but four states, despite the density of population, despite having it earlier, et cetera, et cetera. So the Sundays politics really lead to very clearly positive policy outcomes, without unequivocally.
3: The Giants in their heyday in this period is the late '80s, right? Uh, with the '87 team, you know, losing in seven games and the, and the NLCS, and then of course the '89 team going to the World Series to face the A's. But of course, that story gets overshadowed by the earthquake, which you cover uh, in this book. So tell us about how you, you know, how you read the earthquake moment within the context of, of the book that uh, you know within the context of the book. Well, the Giants
0: in 1989, Game Three of the 1989 World Series is the first game hosted in Candlestick Park by the Giants since game seven of the 1962 World Series when I, none of us were alive, right? It's a long time, 27 years passed and that World Series ended with this dramatic, and if you're a Giants fan, terrible moment, Willie McCovey lining out to Bobby Richardson. Now, they're down two games to nothing already to a team that was much better. I don't even die-hard Giants fans like me, and there was a real rivalry at that point. We knew we weren't going to beat the Oakland A's, and that's why winning the pennant and that Will Clark single was so important a few days earlier. But... We still thought the Giants might win one at the stick, maybe two at the stick, extend this, not get the ignominy of being swept. And just as the game is about to start, now I wasn't at the game, but I was listening on the radio, the earthquake hit. And interestingly, because both fans of both teams are from the Bay Area, the freak out is much less. But the players telling the story of, you know, I, I didn't know what was happening. Is this really an earthquake? Where's my mother? Where's my kids? What do we do afterwards? I mean, Dusty Baker says, I'm eating banana nut bread. You know, <laughs> you remember the actual snack he was having? He was a coach at the time with the Giants, talking to the mayor about he's driving in and the wheels start bumping on the car. I mean, it was and, – and, of course, if you're a San Franciscan, just as a survival, you don't get upset about earthquakes. And as a matter of being cool, you really don't get upset about earthquakes. So it took a while. I mean, Lurie told me that he just assumed they would play the game. The lifelong San Franciscan, he's not going to get upset about a little earthquake. It took a while to realize this is the big one. That was the biggest earthquake in San Francisco since 1906. And there's not been one bigger since. It was a huge earthquake. Uh, Fortunately, casualties were relatively low. Property damage was very high. And there's some great stories about how the city reacted. And then there's this moment where I think two interesting things happen out of the earthquake. One, the A's eventually go to Arizona and start training. And the Giants Maybe because they knew they weren't going to win anyway on some level, stay in the city. And Will Clark says, I go downtown and try to help people. They don't quite know what to do. And then there's this great moment where Faye Vincent, overmatched in his job as commissioner, proposes moving the team, moving the the rest of the World Series to San Diego. And that, and and really, I heard this both from Art Agnos, who was mayor at the time, and from Bob Lurie, and from Corey Bush, who was at the meeting with everyone. He was, you know, Al Rosen isn't alive, but. It was Rosen, say, Vincent, Lurie, Agnos, and Bush, and he wants to move the World Series to San Diego. And he starts kind of threatening and bullying Art Agnos. The whole details of that are in the book. And eventually, Agnos, who's, who's who's a good progress a good progressive mayor, but a little bit of a hothead, uh, and not always well liked by everybody. You'd think Agnos would get in his face, but it's the mild mannered Bob Lurie who pounds his fist on the table and says, essentially, to, well, to quote Bob Lurie, "Over my goddamn dead body! Are we moving the this <laughs> earthquake, this World Series out of San Francisco because we've done so much to get it back here?" And that was a team. I mean, the, the Will Clark opening day home run in '86 off of Nolan Ryan. The the great trade that brings in Kevin Mitchell. The you know the, the draft they had Matt Williams, Robbie Thompson, Will Clark, all first round draft picks. You know the Dave Dravecki story, which we haven't got time to get into. But you know Rick Russell, who who is the most out of shape looking, <laughs> the least likely star pitcher you'll ever see. And they put together a very good team, and they run into you know an even better one and an earthquake, and. Two weeks later, they lose the ballot. They lose the vote for the new ballpark. And those things are not unrelated.
1: So I, I'm going to ask a last question, I think, uh, as we start to run low on time, which is... So you managed to get a blurb from Willie Mays on the back of yeah. the book.
0: Did you actually get to talk to him? I did not talk to him on the record for the book. Uh, I, I had a brief meeting with him. And, you know, Willie Mays is not a young man, and as you may know. And to tell you the truth... He was not having a great day. And I didn't want to push a guy who I felt was, you know, that much older and also really mazed, for goodness sake. So I think we just, we just kind of I shook his hand, a short, brief, polite meeting. And then I, I left because I didn't want to make him feel uncomfortable. And I wanted to make sure he was, he was taken care of, taking care of himself. So, so that was my experience with him. Now, let me say, Shaking Willie Mays' hands was a very cool thing. I don't don't want to say that very casually. Like, it was a very, very cool thing.
1: I I will just say that he says it's a a fun book to read and that it should be read by anybody who loves baseball, especially San San Francisco Giants fans. So that is as good an endorsement of a book about baseball as I think you can possibly get.
0: Well, thank you. And thank him. Thank you, Willie Mays.
1: So that's all we have time for right now, but I can't recommend enough the book. It's called The Giants and Their City, again, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. So definitely do check it out. And we will be back next week. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends about it and, and rate it on whatever podcast service you use. And we will be back again with the full group next week.
2: All the fans in Giants land love that crazy crap. Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hi, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise
1: Line.